Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. We've seen through this revival that, or this prayer for revival, how revival has to begin in the individual heart as well. We've talked about how uh, revival uh, and the need for revival in our hearts is designed as when a greater presence and spirit of God comes down on God's people because God's people begin to finally start looking up at God. Now, I don't know about you, but there are seasons of my life, just my personal life, when I ebb and flow on the position of my eyes. Our eyes as believers in God are best positioned upward to God at all times. But not all the time do we do that, right? We don't always live with our eyes positioned towards God. Sometimes we look around at the circumstances and we are afraid of those. Sometimes we look at the mountains that are in the way of us and we get afraid of those. Sometimes we look down in a condescending manner on other people thinking, I'm better than you or you're the reason that I'm having problems right now. If our eyes are firmly fixed on God, something beautiful happens. All of our fears, all of our doubts are put in the proper perspective. And if our eyes are firmly fixed on God as well, another beautiful thing happens. All of the oppression and all of the things and all of the things that that, that drive us crazy and all of the things that we think are just enemies against us and all of the strife and the turmoil that we go through here are put in the proper perspective as well. Because we realize that I'm not in a battle that I'm in on my own. No matter what it may be, you are not battling on your own. Our God fights for us. The Bible says he's the one who goes before us. He's the Lord of hosts, meaning he's the Lord of angel armies. And he watches over us. But it's best defined, revival is, is when a greater presence and a spirit of God comes down because God's people start looking up. And revival is what happens when believers focus on God and surrender to his authority, his will, and his agenda. And this is what we oftentimes struggle with. Because just because we've surrendered our our hearts to God and we've surrendered our eternity to God and said, Lord, be merciful to me, sinner, and I trust you to take me to heaven when I die, lordship is much much more difficult than saviorship. Because saviorship doesn't cost us anything. We're just receiving a gift. But lordship costs us. This is the part where Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. And sometimes it's hard to surrender to his authority. Sometimes it's hard to surrender to his will and to his agenda. That's why when we pray that why part of the, of the prayer is yield, it means says, yes, God, to whatever you've done. When we pray, we lay out our petitions before God, and then before we get up and before we walk away from that holy moment with the Lord, we say, Lord, I promise you to say yes to whatever you decide to do. That's difficult, isn't it? Because a lot of us base the goodness of God on whether he's doing the things that we know in our hearts or think in our minds are really good. But sometimes what we think are good, God knows is not the best good. God's working in a different way and we have to trust him in that. See, there's no one way to make revival happen. There's, but there is one common thread in every revival that we've seen in scripture and throughout all of history. Revival comes when God's people begin to pray. That's one common thread. You never see a revival fall. You never see a revival or a regeneration of the spirit of God or a move of of, of just the acknowledgement of God without prayer being involved. Prayer is that catalyst. You can pray a whole lot and revival not fall, but you cannot pray 
I mean, revival will not fall if you don't pray, I guess is what I'm trying to say, right? So, and this is what I love about our God. Here's the deal. God doesn't want to be distant. God doesn't want to stay distant from us. He's not playing games with us. He's not like, he's not small minded and he doesn't have this ego trip to where he says, well, God's people just aren't giving me my props lately. So I guess I just need to, uh, I guess I just need to, you know, stay away from them for a little while and let's see how well they like that. No, he's not doing that. He can't be a party to sin. He can't be a party to rebellion, but he also loves us and he will not force himself on us either. If we want to walk away and if we want to stray, he will let us, but he will also keep his eye on us and he continues to pursue us by his love. See, he doesn't want to be distant. This is what separates Christianity from all the other faiths and religions that are out there is because he doesn't delight in being elusive or hard to get. He's not like this squirrel that you're just trying to chase through the trees to catch him. God wants to be caught. He wants to be caught. This is why Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and all you who are burdened, and I will give you rest. And when he said, come to me, he didn't run from the spot that he said it from. He stays there. We know where God is. He sits high and lifted up. And if we will turn our attention towards him, he will turn his hand toward us. He created us in his image. He doesn't create separation for the sake of remaining unattainable and and avoidable. See, he created us in his image for fellowship with him, to enjoy his glory forever. And because of that, he offers us forgiveness. He offers us mercy and grace and salvation and redemption from the sin that separates us from him. See, when we sinned and walked away, he could have said, that's fine. See ya. I'll find somebody else that wants me. No, God continues to pursue us. Because of that, that gives us a lasting hope and a peace and the precious promise of eternal life. And he invites us into this loving relationship with him through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit who never leaves us alone, never leaves us abandoned. He wants to work in us and show his glory through us. But he's made it that if we are there, we have to ask for him to do that. And the question is, this morning as we look, as we've looked at the invitation when Isaiah said, Lord, come down and rend the heavens. As we looked at the expectation, do we truly believe that God is capable of the impossible? Is God is capable of shaking the mountains that are in our way? And as we looked last week at are we preparing our hearts, we must look this week at are we desperate for him? Just like the songs that we sang this morning, there's nothing worth more or that will ever come close. There's nothing can compare. You're our living hope. It's your presence, Lord, right? He wants to work in us and this is our dynamic faith. This is what makes our faith so dynamic, so living and so powerful. It's because it's not a dead religion. We revere and we serve a living savior, not a dead icon. We know that when we pray, we're not just praying into the air, we're talking to the king of the universe. That when we meet to worship, we're not just remembering someone, we are, we are, we are glorifying and lavishing our love on someone who is alive and loves us first. Like the old hymn says, I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy and I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, what? He's always near. He lives, guys. He lives. And that should make us desperate for him. It's hard to be desperate for an icon. But man, you can be desperate for someone who is alive and well and is good and you've seen evidence of his goodness and you've opened your eyes and turned your eyes towards his goodness. It just makes us desperate for him.
How many of you ever get like you, you, see, you see your favorite meal being prepared or you, you, you walk in the house and you smell your favorite food being cooked? Thanksgiving is coming up, right? So you walk in, you smell that good food and your mouth just starts watering. You start to get, your stomach starts to get this sense of desperation. Man, I'm about to have something good. That's the, the idea behind Isaiah's prayer here. God is good and man, we're about to taste his goodness. So let's look this morning at Isaiah's prayer again and then we'll dive into our message. He says in verse number one, if only you would tear the heavens open or rend the heavens or open the heavens and come down so that the mountains would quake at your presence just as the fire kindles brushwood, fire boils water. You make your presence known to your enemy so that nations would tremble at your presence. When you did awesome works that we didn't expect, you who came down in the mountains quaked at your presence from ancient times. No one has heard, no one has listened to, no eye has seen any God except you who acts on behalf of the one who waits for you welcome the one who joyfully does what is right. They remember you in your ways, but we have sinned and you were angry. How can we be saved if we remain in our sins? All of us have become like something unclean and our unrighteous acts are like a polluted garment. All of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities carry us away like the wind. No one calls on your name, striving to take hold of you anymore, for you have hidden your face from us and made us melt because of your iniquity. Yet, Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hands. That was the beautiful promise that we left off with last Sunday that he is the, he is the potter and we are the clay and he knows what he is making. And now we look at verse number nine. Lord, do not be terribly angry or remember our iniquity forever. Please look, all of us are your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a, a wilderness. Jerusalem is a desolation. Our holy and beautiful temple where our fathers praised you is burned down. And all that was dear to us lies in ruins. Lord, after all this, will you restrain yourself? Will you keep silent and afflict us severely? Holy Spirit, speak to us now, please. Let me get out of the way and just be the messenger today. May you move us in Jesus' name. Amen. We serve a risen Savior, as the hymn says. He's in the world today. I know that he's living no matter what men may say. I hear his hand of mercy. I see his, or hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always near. That's that old hymn that we sing oftentimes in church, right? And it's, it's true. Every last word of it is true. But we don't live like it, do we? We oftentimes live like that is a song or a, 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 a claim of victory from years and generations gone by. It's like, man, I remember that he used to do amazing things, but man, I think those days are over with. Church, those days aren't over with because God's not done. God works in different ways in different generations, but he always works for the same purpose and that is for his glory. You see, we have a dynamic faith because we have a dynamic Savior and He is alive today. But the statistics of Christianity today, especially in the U.S., doesn't make it look so powerful or vibrant, right? We hear of churches closing their doors each week. And this is a very real possibility that we're talking about at Graceway, if we're honest, right? We hear things like that happening. The majority of pastors today, they say statistics say, will not continue into that calling until they retire, the Americans' membership in houses of worship continued to decline uh, since 2000, dropping below 50% for the very first time in 2020. For the first time in 2020, only 47% of Americans said they belonged to a house of worship, that is a church, a synagogue, or a mosque, down from 50% in 2018. And in 1999, the total was 70%. 
Just under 30 years ago, 70% of people were involved in a house of worship. That number's dropped even more since 2022, or since 20, since 2020 into the mid to high 30% mark since COVID. In the SBC, every state in America has reported a decline in membership and in attendance. And the strange thing is that up until COVID hit, churches reported growing staff, bigger facilities, more extensive programs, greater investments in structure and marketing, even though they saw so much decline. What's all that mean? means that the American church, while we promote a wholly different dynamic message of hope and salvation and love and freedom than any other religion in the world, and we know we have a living God, a living Savior, we still live in a state of desperation. We've lived in denial about it for a long time, but I think we're starting to see that desperate state. As we look at churches that used to be full, they're now empty. Right? We've seen continuous decline over the decades, but frantic activity has come up to stem the tide. But all of our attention seems to be in this place. They say, well, if we have this new program, that might bring people in. If we build this gym, that might get people to come onto our campus. If we do all of these things, that might get better. All the experts say, do more, do more, do more. But we never hear people say, more God. More God. More God. The answer is more God, more desperate hunger and desire for him. A pastor once said that the American church today is choking and dying on all the things that it thinks to need, that they need to replace God or manufacture God. Folks, we don't have to manufacture God. That's what the other religions do. We have a living God. See, we're choking on things because we've let so many other things stand in the way of the flow of God's real power. Think about today. Let's say you go to lunch today somewhere and you're at a restaurant. All of a sudden from behind you, you, you hear some coughing and you turn around and you see someone and they are doing this. And what are they doing? They're choking, right? What does that mean when a person is choking? When a person is choking, it means that there is an obstruction in their windpipe and oxygen and airflow is being cut off. And if they don't get that returned to them quickly, they're going to die. Or they're going, to have, they're going to have some severe brain problems. So what is the only hope? The only hope is to clear that obstruction out of the way. Well, well, church, if we're choking on all of these other things that are like siphoning off and crimping off the flow of God's power, the only thing we can do is clear those obstructions and make a way for that to happen. This is a picture of where we are in American faith. We all see there's a problem. We see fewer and fewer cars on the road on Sunday mornings. We, our church is off of one of the most, one of the most tragically frustrating thoroughfares in Lexington, Kentucky, Nicholasville Road, right? But how many of you actually have a problem getting to church on Sunday morning on Nicholasville Road? We don't, right? Fewer and fewer cars on the way to church, passing by churches with parking lots that have more empty spaces than full spaces. We know that there's something that is wrong. Something has to right the ship and turn the tide and see those numbers go back up and up and up again. But here's the thing. A lot of us, what we're trying to do is find ways to make Jesus popular in our culture again. But we were never called. The gospel is never meant to make Jesus popular in a culture. It's meant to enthrone Jesus as king in a heart. See, we can't program a revival. We can't program a heart change. We can try to make Jesus look as 
palatable or as attractive or as, uh, as, as accommodating to all of our whims and desires as we want to, but we're just preaching a false Jesus. We're preaching a G, we must preach a Jesus that eradicates sin and becomes Lord and King of a life. And this is where we go wrong. We, si we simply can't desire a world where Jesus is popular. We must desire a world where Jesus is king. And when Jesus is just popular, obstructions get in the way. But when Jesus is king, the path is clear for his glory. And this is the attitude of Isaiah in our text. He's like, Lord, we deserve everything coming to us. But if you could just show us mercy one more time. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Do we have a desperation for King Jesus? So this morning, number one, the desperate cry for revival is one that cries out desperately for his mercy. A desperate cry for revival is one that cries out desperately for his mercy. There was a, a, a young guy that was driving late at night on the highway coming home and uh, he was kind of, he was real sleepy. He was real tired. If you've ever been there before where you kind of, you know you're nodding off and you know that you got to get home and you're like, man, everybody else is in the car is asleep and it's just like, it's just you, right? You're like, please just stay awake. Well, I guess he was swerving too much or whatever and his foot laid on the gas a little too hard and all of a sudden he was, he was jolted back to consciousness by the flashing lights and the siren. He'd been pulled over. So as the guy pulls over and he's feeling terrible about everything, the officer walks up and before, and since it was late at night, he had his flashlight in his hand, his hand on his holster because he never knows what's coming and he starts to look into the car and as he looks into the back of the car, he sees a little 18-month-old little girl sitting in a, sitting in a, uh, a car seat. And he looks over and he sees three other kids that are crammed in as well. They're all asleep. And he looks at the guy who's scared to death and he looks over and he sees a young, a young woman with him who is obviously eight or nine months pregnant and ready to have another one. The guy looks at him and doesn't even say license and registration or anything. He looks at him and he says, son, do you know how fast you were going? He said, yes, sir, I do. I'm sorry. I was, I was tired and I'm, I'm just trying to get home. And he looks at him and he said, son, you can't afford this ticket. <laughs> looking at things, you, by the looks of things, you can't afford this ticket. And he says, how about we pay more attention and we just drive on? He walks back to the, to the police car, doesn't give him a ticket, gives him a warning. And really what he gave him was mercy, right? Because we know mercy is when we don't get what we deserve. The bad, the punishment is when we get forgiven, we get pardoned from something that we actually deserve, but we don't get the punishment that we deserve to have. See, this is true, but mercy goes deeper than that when it comes to God. It's not only not getting the bad that we deserve, but it's also not getting the punishment that we deserve and could never pay for on our own. You see, that guy may have worked hard enough to get, to get and pay off his ticket and all that type of stuff. And it was nice that he got mercy there, but he could have eventually probably worked hard enough to pay for that ticket. We can't pay for the ticket of sin. We just can't do it. So God's mercy is beautiful because he pardons us of something that we definitely deserve and are guilty of, but he pardons us because he knows without that pardon, we will never pay off the sentence because the wages of our sin is death. But the gift, the merciful gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. See, in God's mercy, he chooses not to impart what we deserve in our sin. He does that because he's merciful to us. And he also does that because we can't afford to pay the debt. But see, God's mercy also can't be applied until it's recognized. 
See, God doesn't just throw mercy on people who don't want it or don't realize that they need it. It's when we realize that we need it, when we become, when we become aware of the fact that we are sinners and we say, God, be merciful. God, forgive me of my sin. And somebody needs to hear this today. Mercy for sin doesn't just happen at the moment we come to get saved. Mercy is something that is poured out to us every day because even after we're saved, we still sin. We still wander. We still have moments of rebellion and we need mercy for that just the same. And God in his mercy is willing to give it. As we look last week's text, we saw Isaiah was already, has already voiced and he's confessed the sin and this guilt of the, of the people of Israel. In verse number five, he says, we have sinned and you were angry. And he said, if we continue in our sins, how can we be forgiven? And then in verse number seven, he says, here's the sin. No one calls on your name anyone anymore. Nobody takes hold of you anymore. Isaiah is not trying to just tiptoe around the problem. He's not trying to ignore the elephant in the room. He's saying, Lord, you have brought, there, there has been consequences brought for our sin and we deserve it. We've turned our back on you and we deserve where we're at. But God, if you would just show us mercy. I wonder sometimes if that's actually our hearts when we go and we pray to the Lord and we repent of the sins that we commit every day. Because what we're really good at sometimes is just trying to make light of our sin. When we make light of our sin, we'll also be tempted to settle for a light involvement of God. See, a lot of us want to say, how, close, how much like the world can I be and still have enough of God that it takes to get to heaven. And that's all we really want. But when you've had a taste of the full measure of God's glory upon you, there's nothing that satisfies. There's nothing that compares to that. But what we're often settling for is, how close can I get to the line without actually having to really pay for it? I'll take that kind of life. In verse number nine, here's what we see. Well, actually, let me, let me go back to verse number seven. He says, no one calls on your name, so I'm to take hold of you. This is actually a confession of a sinful state and a sinful mindset. I don't need God. It's I'm not desperate for God. Israel had stopped being desperate for God. And we do that all the time, right? We go through seasons where we're desperate for him because we're down and out. And we're, we're, we've probably created that down and out spot. And we say, oh God, if you don't invade and if you don't move, I'm going to be in trouble. And then God in his mercy moves and what happens? We love him for a moment and then we just get right back to what we were doing. And we forget him again. This is exactly what Israel was doing. It's the sinful state of rebellion and apostasy. I don't need God anymore. I got everything I need. And then God reminds us, and then then life and sin reminds us, no, I don't have everything I need. All I need is him, and I'm wanting everything other than him. God's people, Israel, had just stopped following God, and when you stop following him, you'll always end up walking in contradiction to him. You catch this? When we stop following God, we end up walking in contradiction to God. Because there's only one way to walk, towards him or away. And in verse number nine, we see Isaiah's desperate plea for mercy. Lord, please don't be terribly angry. You know what he's saying? God, you deserve to just turn, we deserve for you to turn your back on us forever. He says, but Lord, please, please don't be terribly angry and remember our iniquity forever. He says, please look at us once again. He says, we're all your people. 
He said, you put us here. You called us by name. And I realize that a lot of people around have forgotten the glory of that. But Lord, I'm desperate for your majesty and I'm desperate for your mercy. Will you please once again look favorably on us? We don't deserve it, but Lord, please do it. Where's those deaths? Is that the plea of desperation in our churches today? Is that the plea of desperation in our prayer life today? He's crying out in desperation without a defense, without collateral for forgiveness. He's not saying, Lord, I know we've turned our back on you, but in other ways we've done this and we've done this. No, he just says, Lord, I know the problem. Only you can make it right through mercy. So it's a desperation that cries out for mercy. It's a desperation that cries out in brokenness as well. A desperation that cries out in brokenness. An amazing thing happens when we finally realize we need mercy. We realize we need mercy because we finally look at just how broken we are. Look at verse verse 10 of our text. Isaiah says, your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion, or which is another name for Jerusalem, God's holy city, has become a wilderness. And Jerusalem is a desolation. Our holy and our beautiful temple where our ancestors praised you has been burned down. And all that was dear to us lies in ruins. Can you think of a better, more glaring, clearer picture of what happens when we neglect God? God's people had neglected God and what happened? Everything just crumbled. God's holy city that he had built to be praised by God's chosen people. When they stopped praising him, that city fell apart. When they stopped turning to him, it fell apart because of Israel's rejection of God and his law for generations. The land that used to flow with milk and honey was dried up in a wilderness now, was a wasteland. Enemies had come in and they had sacked Jerusalem, which was the city of God, and they took its citizens into their custody. It's around the time that they go into the Babylonian captivity. They had destroyed the walls of the city and the temple where God's presence dwelled among his people. And they had burned down and they reduced the temple to a heap of ash. This was, this was the, the, the end result when God's people turned from God. Israel was broken down literally and all the former beauty of God's holy capital city was gone and only ruins remained. And while this is a description of the literal condition of the land in Isaiah's day, this is metaphorical for the condition of the backslidden Christian. This is the condition for the apostate church or people who just don't turn to God like they should. This is what happens. See, there is maintenance that takes place in our relationship with Jesus. When we don't call on God and we don't look to God, things begin to fall apart. When we don't nurture the relationship that we're given with him, the enemy will sneak in and he'll ransack everything. He can't take us captive, thank God. He can't, he can't take us off to hell. He can't do that. But man, the spiritual toll that the distance and rebellion to God takes on a believer, man. He can hold our faith captive. He can steal our joy. He can steal our zeal. He can torment us with doubt. And I believe that the enemy is having a field day in the church of Jesus Christ today. Because we've turned our back in rebellion or in thinking that there's other things that make God better or there's other things that are better than God. And this is a picture of a broken and desolate Jerusalem is a picture of the soul that is without God too. We're broken. 
And we're bound up in our sin. We're bound up in our flesh. And we live under the tyranny of sin. And we seek for peace through any avenue that we can find. Only to come to the end of the road frustrated and disappointed and more broken. And only through salvation in Jesus Christ are we set free from that sin nature. Only in salvation in Jesus Christ, we're not just pieced back together, but we're made a new creation. I love the fact that God says he makes beauty from the ashes, from the ash heap of our sin, the ash heap of our deadness in him. He brings beauty when he resurrects us as totally new in him by the grace of God. See, this is the thing. Revival comes to the broken because God doesn't want to leave the broken broken. He doesn't just stand back and say, look what you could have done with me, but now you can't. No, in his grace and his mercy, he gives us a chance. A second, a third, a fourth, a fifth. Because he's good. See, when we don't nurture the relationship that we're given with God, the enemy sneaks in and he ransacks everything. He won't take us captive, but he'll hold our faith captive. He'll steal our joy. And maybe that describes you today, church. Maybe that describes where you're at. Sure, you're a believer, You know Jesus Christ, you know heaven is your home, but you haven't always lived up to that believer status. And if you're being honest with yourself, right now you're struggling. And after some of the things you've done, you're wondering how could things ever change. After some of the things you've done, you're saying God's people would, would struggle forever to forgive me. If I were to make my sin known and if I were to confess my sin and if I were to repent, if I were to rededicate, God's people would judge me. They wouldn't forgive me. Let me tell you something. A a believer who sits in judgment is not your problem when you're looking for forgiveness. That's their problem with God. So what we do is we're tempted to settle in our brokenness and decide that this is the prison that we've created for ourselves. This is the bed I've made and now I have to sleep in it. No, the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ says there is no bed of torment that you can make that Jesus doesn't pull you out of and lift you out of and set you on a rock above it. We're just not desperate enough. You get desperate enough, you realize he's the only hope. You come to him. See, brokenness in the light of grace and mercy. What if I told you that our brokenness wasn't just the reward that you get for your sin? What if I told you that guilt and shame that we feel in our sin is not our just reward for that? It's not just what we earn for that. Yes, it's part of that. But what if I told you that God uses that brokenness for his glory? What if I told you that he uses that brokenness to draw you to his goodness? A gift to call you to his grace. A gift to call you to his mercy. A gift to remember that while I'm shattered and broken in pieces, there is a God who makes beauty from ashes. He puts broken things back together and he makes them all brand new. What if the ash heap that you create in your rebellion is just what God uses to resurrect something beautiful and glorious in you? But see, what the enemy wants us to do is to say, no, you're broken. It's desolate. There's no good that can ever come from it. You know what happened with Israel after this brokenness and desolation? A few years down the road, there was a guy named Nehemiah who was living in captivity. And he said, you know what? I think we need to go back and we need to rebuild the walls. And you know what God did through all that? God moved on a pagan king to not only let him go back, but he financed the whole project. Right? Why? Because Nehemiah was desperate enough. And the people that Nehemiah worked with was desperate. But it wasn't easy. Nehemiah went back and there were so many people telling him he couldn't do it. There were people fighting against him doing it. But in his desperation, God moved. 
You see, what if the ash heap that we create in our rebellion is just what God uses to resurrect us and make something beautiful where he gets all the glory from it? Since tomorrow is Halloween, that means that the next day will be November the 1st. And you know what that means, right? All the Christmas commercials start. And Lifetime and Hallmark become Christmas rom-com extravaganzas, right? Love it, right? It's, it's all wonderful, right? How many of you really, honestly, you watch all the, Christmas, the cheesy Christmas rom-coms when they come out? You don't? Okay, good. So you don't understand what I'm saying. Okay, see, some of you are embarrassed. It's okay. It's all right. Just be honest. I watch them every once in a while to laugh at them. A couple years ago, New York Times TV critic Neil Genslinger, he pointed out that the schmaltzy holiday movie fair served up on the Hallmark and Lifetime channels every year are filled with as much pain, heartache, and disaster as they are with holiday cheer. He said the themes are strikingly similar and predictable. See if you've seen this movie. A lonely widower struggles to make Christmas happy for his children after the loss of their mother. And oh my goodness, he meets um, a woman that is posing as an elf for Santa Claus at the mall and they fall in love, right? All right. Um, A young wife can't allow herself to celebrate the season at all since the death of her husband at Christmas time a few years prior. A family faces a giftless Christmas in the wake of a job layoff. Etc., etc., etc. Now it's a, uh, a, a corporate workaholic discovers that someone died and left them a, an inn or a bed and breakfast in the country and they get to go and fix it all up, right? But everyone has their own brokenness, right? And what comes in to fix it? The spirit of Christmas. It's in our brokenness. And this is what he says this. He says, in a world of made-for-TV movies, it's also true in life. For a heart to be warmed, it must first be broken. For a heart to be warned, it must first be broken. So you may be sitting there right now grieving over the brokenness. Take it to Jesus. Because he's going to use that brokenness to make beauty. It's a brokenness that makes restoration so beautiful. Isaiah noted the time and the toll that time had taken without God. And here's what the Lord says. Here's the promise that the Lord said. If you're sitting there thinking, yeah, that's great for everybody else, but you don't know how bad I've broken it. God does. And he knew that when these words were penned in Psalms. Psalm 34 says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Isaiah chapter 57 says, for the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, says this, I live in a high and a holy place and with the oppressed and lowly of spirit. He says, I invite the, the oppressed and the lowly of spirit to live with me in my high and lowly place. Hmm. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the oppressed. And in verse number 17, he says, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not ever, never, no, never despise. This is the God that we worship. This is the God who wants to bring revival. He's not distant. He's not petulant. He's not holding a grudge. He is waiting for that brokenness to finally lead us to ask him in desperation for his mercy. Our God fluently speaks the language of the broken. Fluently. So we must have desperation that cries out for mercy. And then lastly and quickly before we close, it's a desperation that cries out in need. Look at verse number 12. You would think that in this prayer he put a nice, neat little bow on it, right? It's anything but that. Lord, after all this, will you restrain yourself? Will you keep silent and afflict us severely? There's no in Jesus' name, amen, Lord. It's just this is the end of the prayer, 
right? Because in, in chapter 65, you see the Lord's response. See, at the end of this prayer is the realization that the focus was never on God relieving the bad that has been done, but a plea for him to resume the good. You catch this? Isaiah was never asking God, would you please just stop? What he was asking God to do was to resume the goodness. You see, because God didn't bring the bad. We bring, we bring the bad on ourselves through sin. What he was asking God was, Lord, would you please resume the goodness once again? Resume the blessing. We realize that we have broken all of the relationship that we have with you. Will you resume it? Will you look at us once again? In other words, the focus isn't on what God had done to them, but on what he had stopped doing for them. Isaiah says their greatest affliction is God's silence and his lack of presence. And I'll tell you this, there is no affliction that is greater, no disease that is more deadly, no anxiety or angst that is more debilitating than knowing that God is not there. But friend, in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is never the reality. God is always there. He never leaves you. He never forsakes us. See, God doesn't have to do anything to bring affliction to us. All he has to do is stop delivering the things that we take for granted. His peace, his protection, his spiritual nourishment, his mercy. All these things that come as a byproduct of his presence in our lives. When he stops the flow of his presence, the evil course of things take their toll. Our greatest need is not seen in the absence of wealth or power or health or security. Our greatest need is seen in the absence of his presence. That's when we realize we're really in trouble. So we look around and God's not there. See, the church's greatest need is not fuller pews or bigger offerings or more awesome programs. The church's greatest need is a return to the power and presence of God. Where conviction falls on us, where we are brought to, to tears and we're brought to a realization that he is holy and we are not. And the only hope we have is to be brought near to him by his grace and by his mercy. See, in Exodus 33, as we close out this morning, we close with this story from the Old Testament. Moses is leading God's people through the wilderness. The people have spent most of their time whining and complaining, questioning every move that God told Moses to make, right? They got there and they're like, man, well, at least we had food every day and we don't like the manna. And they're, they're just murmuring all the time, the Bible says. Both God and Moses are getting kind of fed up with it. So God calls Moses up to the mountain to give him a set of 10 laws, the 10 commandments. And while they're up there together talking and thunder is clapping and all this stuff is going on, what are the people down there doing? They're saying, man, we're just sick and tired of waiting on God and waiting on Moses. So they decide to melt down all their jewelry and they make a golden calf and they begin to worship it. See, the thing about idols is we can make them what, they want them, what we want them to be. But we can't make God that way. And I think that's why we struggle to follow him so much. But God was angry. And God said, look, told Moses to look down and see what your people have done. Just like a parent, you know, when, when the kids are acting up, all of a sudden those kids aren't yours. They're your spouse's kids. You know, look what your kid did, right? God looks at Moses and says, look what your people are doing. And he says, I'm just going to wipe them out. Moses says, please don't do that. Let's give them another chance. And so he says, Moses, get down there and show them what they've done wrong. And Moses goes down there and just goes off. You can read about the details of it if you want to. It's pretty severe. God calls Moses back up into the mountain again. And he says, and God says, God tells Moses, I've decided I'm not going to destroy them. He says, but I'm going to tell you this. 
And this is one of the saddest verses in history. He said, you can go on into the land that I promised you, but from here on out, it's just you and the people. I'm not going with them if they don't want me. Moses is like, that's a no-go, God. We can't do that. And look what Moses says in chapter 33. You'll see it there on your screen. He says, if your presence doesn't go, then don't make us go up from here. How will it be known that I and your people have found favor with you unless you go with us? And I and your people will be distinguished by this from all other people on the face of the earth. See, Moses understood that the only thing that made his people distinct was the presence of God going with them. And church, the only thing that makes our life distinct and the only thing that makes our life worth it is the presence of God going with us. Isaiah understood the only thing that made his people right was the presence of God returning to them. Church, the only thing that makes the church right and healthy and good is the presence of God being welcome and moving in it. See, this is our greatest need, is the presence of God. So as we close out this morning, let me ask you, is that your greatest desire, to have the presence of God rest upon you, to rest upon your home, to rest upon your family, to rest upon your job, to rest upon your church. We're nothing without the presence of God. We have nothing. Even we have everything, but not the presence of God. We have nothing. It's in His presence. So as we bow our heads, Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about His grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section, or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.